But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Now some of you are already getting it and you're saying it with me, and man, do I love that. Now let's say it together. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Now, would you stand with me and say that? It's going to give your lungs a little more extra air, and you're going to be able to really say that out nice and loud. Say it with me. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Let's pray. Father, we believe that to be true No matter what we've done, no matter who we are, no matter our circumstances in life, we are loved. And you demonstrated that on the cross for us. May that drop a little deeper in our heart today. I pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. The year was 2008. I was in my mid-30s. And to be honest, I had been in ministry about 12 years, a dozen years or so, and I honestly thought up until that point, everything I touched grew. So I didn't think of myself as being arrogant, but rather just being confident. And my confidence grew even more because the second largest church in the country asked me, little me, to plant a church with them. And I'll be honest with you, I wanted to do that. It was an easy yes for me because I wanted to see the kingdom of God grow. I want to see changed lives. There was also a part of me that wanted to do something rather successful and to be noticed. And to have that moment where I could say, hey mom, look at me, I did pretty well. But that isn't how the story went at all. In my life, three years later, we closed that church And man, was I embarrassed as I felt this great big failure. See, the problem is, as somebody who really fears failure, every single person I knew knew about my public failure. Many of them had even been involved in trying to help. And there I was thinking, would I ever even get another job? How does it go from here? Is this my new identity? Is this who I am? And I felt like in that moment, my failure was final. You ever felt that way? Ever felt that way where there's something that you've done, maybe it was a step of faith you took, or maybe it was a decision you made, maybe it's a relationship you destroyed, maybe you're divorced, you're divorced again, maybe your child has gone wayward or grandchild, and you never thought that would be you. Maybe it's an integrity issue that you've compromised in the past. Maybe there's something as you look in the past where you go, that's my moment of big public failure. It was an addiction. There's something on your record, and in that moment, it feels final. What do you do when you blow it and you just failed? Most of us have been there. And I want to ask you to take 15 seconds to share this one with your neighbor. Because this is a little too personal. This is a little too transparent. That big failure that we all have. And so today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at one of the most famous failures, I believe the most famous, in all the scripture. 
And it's going to feel very final for this person too. And then, eventually, on the backside of that failure, there's this big moment where something miraculous happens that I think we can learn from even 2,000 years later. Here's what I want to say. If you have failure, and most of us do, most of us know people who are struggling with failure right now. I hope when we're done, you just have a little bit more hope because of the story we're going to look at today gives us the, the simple progress to take when we fail, after we blow it. What can we do to overcome it? Well, that's what we're going to discover today. We're going to look at it together in Mark chapter 14, and we'll get there in just a second. But I hope you have your Bibles today, and you'll open them up and be ready to go in Mark, second book of the New Testament, chapter 14. Now, if you're new, here's what we're doing. We're going through the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Why? Because we believe that's the week that changed the world. And we're actually going day by day through the last week of Jesus' life on earth all the way up to Easter, which is in two weeks from today. Can you believe that? In fact, if you haven't done it already, let me encourage you to go ahead and be inviting someone, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, someone you go to school with, to come and join you on Easter Sunday because people are more likely to say yes on that day than any other day this year. So let's invite someone to come with us two weeks from today on that special Easter Sunday as we conclude this series, this final week of Jesus' life together. Now, here's how it Here's how it went down as we recap what we've looked at together. That Sunday, that final week, if you'll remember, Jesus enters Jerusalem. Remember that story? He's on the donkey and he's declaring that he's the Messiah. And the people are gathered and they're going, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us now, save us now. He's the one that's going to free us from the Roman uh, oppression. That's what they're thinking. And Jesus enters on that Sunday, the city of Jerusalem, coming to celebrate the Passover. Remember that? And then that Monday, if you remember, he went to the temple and he overthrew some tables and he began to teach and he began to heal. And then we saw on Tuesday and Wednesday, he did the same thing. He would go back and he was teaching simultaneously though. Remember all of a sudden the religious people and those who were in political power, they began to plot to kill Jesus and they would be successful in that crucifixion on the Friday of that week. And then last week, we looked at the Thursday of that week as we're approaching the crucifixion. That Thursday, remember, that Jesus gathers with his disciples and they go and they experience the Last Supper together. Remember that? And then we saw a couple of bombshells that Jesus laid on the disciples that day at that meal. First was, if you remember, he told them in that Last Supper gathering that one of them would betray him. And they all thought, who in the world would that be? And then if you remember the last bombshell that he dropped as they were leaving that last supper, he said, Jesus said, all of you will fall away and abandon me. And you remember what Peter said? Not me. Even if everybody, yeah, I can see how they would fall away. I can see how they would fall away. I'll never fall away. Even if it's to my death, I will never fall away. And Jesus responds and says, Peter, not only will you fall away, you will fall away tonight before the rooster crows the second time. You will deny me three times. And Peter says, no, I won't. Not a chance. Not a chance. And so you already know the failure we're going to look at today. But before we get to that failure, we've got to see the arrest. And this sets the stage for trials and what we're working toward next week that moment when our Savior hangs on the cross 
for me and for you. But there's some significant things that happen just before that crucifixion. They take place Thursday night and early Friday morning. And it's those events, the arrest and the failure, that we're going to look at today. And I hope and pray that you will find hope in what we see from Peter's failure. Now, hopefully you found your place there in Mark chapter 14. Let's look at it together. We pick up the story. As Jesus has finished with the Last Supper and he's going out with his disciples, he said, you're going to fall away. And Peter's like, no, I won't. He says, not only will you fall away, you'll fall away tonight. You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And Peter goes, no, I won't. Peter just has this unrealistic commitment despite what Jesus is saying and so watch what happens next in Mark chapter 14 we pick up the story of the last week of our Savior verse 32 hope you have your spot let's look at it together and they went leaving the last supper to a place or a garden called Gethsemane many of us have been there right it's right there on the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to his disciples sit here while I pray and then he takes his inner circle. He took, he took Peter, James, and John along with him. A little bit further, he's got these three guys with him. Can I just, a little side note here. Did you know that Christianity was never intended to be a solo sport? And that we are better together, right? We need each other. I got a chance just this past Thursday to visit Julia Deutsch's women's Bible study at 930 that meets here on Thursdays. Ladies, if you aren't in one, that's a great one to consider. Men, there's a lot of groups for you as well. But you got to be in some kind of Bible study or group. And that's why we need each other. And can I just say, those of you who are online, we are so grateful that you are with us, that you are watching. And if you're in a compromised position or if you are in a vulnerable situation or someone in your family is, we are so grateful that we get to stay connected in this season, this way but those of you who've just sort of made it a habit because now it's so convenient to sit on your couch in your pajamas and you get to watch church how much better can it be let me tell you it's a lot better in person because there's the experience that we need each other it's the way Jesus himself lived his life it's the way we have been created to gather together so I just want to tell you come on back come on back and be part of what we're doing here church would we welcome them back and be grateful to have them here We have been made for each other. That's why this is so important that we have this time together with one another. Jesus knew that this is the way we were made and we are better together. Now, I want you to watch as Jesus continues because this isn't an easy, just, you know, like typical group experience here. Watch what happens next with Peter, James, and John. And he began to be, this is our Savior, deeply distressed and troubled. And he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. He's saying, I need you. I want you to be with me. Keep watch. Going a little further, watch. He fell to the ground and prayed, if possible, the hour might pass from him. If you write in your Bible like I do, you might write to the side right here, Luke twenty two forty four, because that's where Luke records that Jesus actually sweat drops of blood from the anxiety he's feeling in this moment. Can I just say something? I know sometimes we mean well, but sometimes we tend to dismiss people's struggle by saying seemingly helpful things when someone is hurting, and we say things like, 
Well, just trust God. God's got this. Hey, it'll be good on the other side. Just hang in there. God's sovereign. And it's almost as if we unintentionally lack empathy and we beat people up with truth. And in this moment, you notice that it's Jesus who is struggling within his own humanity. And he's asking people. He didn't question God's sovereignty. He knew God was in charge. He knew God would win in the end, and yet he's struggling. There's a human element here where he's just looking at his disciples and saying, just sit with me. And isn't that the best gift we can give sometimes? It's not to dismiss someone's struggle, but to just sit with them. As Solomon said, to mourn with those who mourn can sometimes be the greatest gift we give the hurting. Here Jesus is deeply distressed and he is asking his disciples, don't give me truth. I know, but would you sit with me? And now watch what he says in his prayer to God. He says, Abba, very intimate, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. He's about the cup. In the Old Testament, this was the wrath of God. He's saying, would you take this from me? He's actually asking God to do something other than what he's doing. Jesus is asking that of God the Father. And so I want to make this really practical for you. How would you finish this sentence? If you were praying to God right now and you said, right now, Lord, I don't want to blank. How would you fill that in? I don't want to experience this part of my life that you have me in. I don't want this to be going this way. How would you finish that sentence? This is Jesus in the garden saying, Lord, right now I don't want to have this cup poured out on me. But now watch the rest of that verse, which is really giving this prayer its context. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so let me give you one of the most courageous prayers that I am learning to pray. What Jesus essentially prayed, Lord, right now I don't want to, and I'll, put, I'll just be as honest and raw as I can be with, with God. And then followed up essentially as Jesus did. But I give you permission to change inside of me what you want to change. I don't want to struggle in this relationship. I, I, I don't want to have my children or grandchildren struggle in this area of their life. I, I don't want my life to be missing this relationship. I don't want my career to be here. I don't want this to be like it is. But God, change in me what you want to change. If that's going to remain. That's a courageous prayer that Jesus has just prayed. Now, watch as he goes forward because it turns out his disciples aren't being as supportive as they desire to be. Look at the next verse, 37. It says, then Jesus returned to the disciples and he found them sleeping. How do you kind of just want to push them a little bit and say, come on guys, hang in there. It's Jesus, right? Like you can stay in there for a few more hours, but I know I am the same way. Simon, he looks at Peter and he said, you are asleep? Uh, Peter, you were the one that said you would go with me to death. You're the one that said you would never deny me and you're asleep. Within minutes, within hours of that bold declaration, couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And then he gives them this credit. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So once more, Jesus went away. And he prayed the same thing that we just saw. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping. And this is a really prolonged nap. 
that the disciples are having in the presence of Jesus when he needs them most, it seems. Because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say to him. I love that honesty. Don't you ever feel that way? I don't know what to say in this moment. Returning, the next verse says, returning the third time. Did you catch that? Jesus prayed not once, not twice, but three times, Father, would you take this cup from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Comes back to the disciples, they're sleeping. He goes back, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Goes back to the disciples, they're sleeping still. He goes back once again, oh God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Prayer makes a difference. But what I want to catch here is that Jesus is persistently praying. And sometimes a sentence prayer is just as powerful as a paragraph prayer. It's not the length of prayer that matters. It's the persistence of the prayer. And Jesus continues to go back to pray and to pray and to pray. He's seeking God. And then I want you to watch what happens. In the next part of that verse, after the third prayer, Jesus goes to his disciples, and he says, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. And you hear the tone change in Jesus. And now he's not having his back to the cross. Suddenly he's facing the cross, and he says, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, he says to his disciples, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Notice the demeanor in Jesus has changed from being distressed, falling, being troubled in his spirit. And all of a sudden he says, it's game time. Let's go. What's changed in Jesus? He spent time praying over and over, being transparent before the Father, but then submitting to the Father's will. And it's become clear to him what the Father's will is. And he is able then to say, okay, let's go. I'm on mission now because he has submitted what he wants to what the Father wants. This is the biggest journey in all of our lives, isn't it? Submitting what I want to what the Father wants. Here's what I find fascinating about this prayer experience between Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and God the Father. Sometimes prayer will change my circumstances, but every time prayer will change me. And in this case, prayer didn't change the cup that was coming upon Jesus, but prayer seemed to change Jesus. And he now faces the cross with commitment and with courage, knowing this is his Father's will. And he said, let us go, my betrayer has come. And now we witness the most famous arrest in all of Scripture in the next verse. And just as Jesus was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. And in that moment, every one of the disciples goes, so he's the one. Can you imagine they're kind of snarling a little bit 
As they see Judas recognizing all the time they've spent together and he's betrayed not only Jesus, but they feel like they've been betrayed. And they realize that Judas has been secretly working behind the scenes, working with the Roman authorities, the enemy, to go and betray their rabbi, their Messiah. And they see that it's Judas. Judas has sort of outed himself, but he didn't come alone. Watch. It says that he came with him, was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests the teachers of the law, and the elders. And now watch what he does in this sort of sickening betrayal. It says now the betrayer had arranged a signal with these Roman oppressors. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The kiss of betrayal. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. And then one of those standing near, which we find in the the Gospels, is Peter. Remember, he's the impulsive, I'll fight to my death unless I'm sleepy, of course. I will be there for you, Jesus, right? And watch what happens. It says he takes his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. But we have to give him credit. Remember, He's a fisherman, not a swordsman. Yes, he was going for the head, but he got an ear. It's okay. He's at least swinging, right? He's doing his very best. I'm going down, and I will take your ear with me, buddy. Right? And then we see Jesus speak, but he's speaking to the Romans, the guards who were there. He says, am I leading a rebellion? That you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? I mean, every day I was with you. All week long I've been here. I've been in the temple every single day. And you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. He's letting them know, you aren't in charge. My God is. And you are a pawn in his plan. Do what you've got to do. And then it's the next verse that's one of the saddest in scriptures, isn't it? Then everyone deserted him and fled. And just like that, one betrayed him and the other 11 abandoned him. Just like he said it would happen at the Last Supper. And now we go down to verse 54 because there's one of those 11, not the betrayer, but the other 11 disciples who does something a little bit unique. And I think it's important that we notice this in verse 54. Peter, however, followed him at a distance right into the courtyard at the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. Now we have no idea what Peter's plan was. He just couldn't completely abandon Jesus. He's sort of in this partial in-between state. Like I've got to be close enough to know what's going on. I can't completely abandon him. I don't know, we don't know where the other 10 have gone, but Peter's still kind of hanging out to his credit. And then what happens in the next few verses, those of you who know the story, is Jesus goes before the high priest and they bring these false witnesses trying to get enough evidence to convict Jesus. However, the problem is everybody's making up their stories and so none of their stories match. And so the high priest is frustrated and so he's trying to get Jesus to speak, to sort of condemn himself. And look at verse 61. We see Jesus' response when he's under trial under these false testimonies. Verse 61, it says, But Jesus remained silent And gave no answer. 
Oh, the high priest is so angry. He keeps asking him and asking him, knowing that these knucklehead witnesses can't even get their story straight. We worked on this. We practiced it. And they keep contradicting each other and their witness is no good. So he tries once again to go after Jesus. It says, again, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And here Jesus does what the high priest has been hoping he would do. And Jesus knows in this moment their testimony will not condemn him. But he steps up to be a fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. And he decides, I will now give you what you want. And I will tell you the truth that you are actually after. And look what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. And coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? Secretly he's thinking because they're knuckleheads and they're going to get it wrong anyway. I'm just going to stick with what Jesus just said. And then he goes on to say, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they would go on to condemn him. And the abuse before the crucifixion would begin. And Jesus is now headed down the path toward the cross to pay for my sins and yours. And we will look at that story next week. But there's one final trial that's about to go on. And this is what I believe is the greatest failure in Scripture. And I couldn't help but think, I used to always think, these next few verses, Peter wishes weren't in the Bible. But we've got to look at them together. Verse 66 The next trial begins because while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by and said, when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him and said, wait a minute, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. Sword is still put up. Confidence And declarations are things of the past. Here, he's afraid of the young girl who's pointed him out as being with Jesus. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, Peter said. Um, And then he goes out into the entryway. And when the servant girl, who apparently is following him in his worst nightmare, she follows him and saw him there, she said again to those standing around, she's not talking to Peter, she's talking to the people around Peter, and she says, This fellow is one of them, and his heart is beating fast. He's wishing he could be anywhere else. He thought he was safe following at a distance, and again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near Peter, they're beginning to look at Peter a little differently and suspiciously as well. Peter's just trying to follow at a distance, and now all the attention and the spotlight is on him. Finally, they said to him, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. You talk like them. You act like them. You dress like them. I think you're one of them. Well, Peter's already blown it. But he is about to have that kind of failure that feels final. That kind of failure that feels like it's your new identity. Watch how he responds. Peter began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And just as confidently as he said, I will never deny you, now he's just as loudly saying, I have never met that man. 
And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. And Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And it all came crashing down. And he broke down and he wept. And Peter had to have felt like his failure was final. I have let down my Savior when he needed me most in the garden and now here just before the cross. <sighs> you know that feeling? Where you experience the kind of failure where you think, how did I ever end up here? I never thought I would be capable of doing that. And oh, I've let so many people down. Other people are going to look at me differently. I can't forget it. I can't seem to get over it. I'm struggling with what I did or what I didn't do. Struggling with how I acted, with what I said. And it seems to become more and more part of me. And we seem to get stuck, in, unable to move forward. I can't help but think that's Peter in this moment. But here's what dawned on me recently. Did you know the book of Mark, written by John Mark, the source for Mark in writing this book is guess who? It's Peter. Peter's the one who gave him most of the content in this book. It's Peter who is the only one who knows about the conversation between him and the little girl. No one knows what she asked or what he said. None of the other disciples were anywhere to be found. No one else knew he was warming himself by the fire at a distance from Jesus but Peter. No one else knows that those people at the fire asked him, aren't you a Galilean? And he denies it with courage. No one knew about any of that. And it could have died with Peter and no one would have ever known. But Peter decided, I think my failure can help others. And he shares that with me and with you for a very specific reason. To give you and I hope when we find ourselves at that point of public failure and we don't know how to move forward. Because it's what happened next in Peter's life that should give you and I hope. I want us to end the story. We could end it in the end of Mark, which includes a little bit of the story, but I really love the way John ends the story. So if you've got your Bibles, and turn with me to John chapter 21, and we'll look at verse 1. You may remember back in Mark 14 that we looked last week, where Jesus said, you're all going to fall away, but I'll go to the cross, I'll rise from the dead, and then I'll meet you in Galilee. Remember when he said that? It was almost like this old Western movie, you know, like I'll meet you in Topeka or something. I don't know, I just made that town. But wherever, right? Jesus said, I'll meet you in Galilee. Look at John chapter 21, verse 1. It says, after, this is after the crucifixion, this is after the resurrection. Afterwards, Jesus appeared to the disciples by the sea of, say that out loud with me. Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. He said, you will fall away. I will go to the cross and I will offer enough grace to cover it. And then I will come to Galilee and I will restore you again. And just like he said, that's how it's going down. And here's what I want you to know, I want you to hear, I want you to believe, I want you to exercise. But Jesus was telling Peter something very profound by even meeting him there in Galilee. Yes, I knew about your failure before you ever got, I knew the details, I know more about it than you do. Jesus could say to Peter. But what Jesus is saying is there's something we must remember. 
that there's more forgiveness in Jesus than there is failure in us. And Jesus wants Peter to know that, and he wants me and you to know that. There's more forgiveness in Jesus than there is failure in us. I don't know about you, but I am grateful for that. Are you? Would you just say that out loud? It's on the screen there. Just say that out loud with me. Remember, there's more forgiveness in Jesus than there is failure in me. That is true. Would you cling to that? Would you, would you live your life out of that truth? Peter is overwhelmed. He jumps into the, the water from the boat when he sees Jesus there at the Sea of Galilee. And it's this beautiful scene. And then I want to skip down to verse 15 because now they have their first conversation. Jesus just couldn't go away without specifically talking with Peter. In fact, when he rose again, you know one of the first things he said? Where's Peter? He, he wanted to come and let him know there's more forgiveness in me than failure in you, Peter. And look at verse 15. Some of us just need to know that. We need to cling to that. Look at verse 15. He goes to Peter and he says, When they finished eating, by the way, Jesus served them breakfast, the suffering servant. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yeah, I know you publicly denied me. Now, would you publicly declare your love for me? Well, Peter, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, well, then feed my lambs. Again, Jesus says, do you love me? He says, you know that I love you. He says, well, then take care of my sheep. And a third time, do you love me? And Peter is so hurt at this point. He goes, do you, you know that I love you? And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. You publicly denied me. Now, would you publicly declare your love for me? See, Jesus is saying, because of what I did on the cross, your history is not your failure, but what I did on the cross. Here's what I want us to all know and to, and to cling to. To know that Christ on the, cross, on the cross, not my failure, is my history. Christ on the cross, not my failure, is my history. That's why God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That is true. No matter what I did, he knew I would do. And Christ died on the cross for that. Christ on the cross, not my failure, is my history. And then I love what he tells Peter to do. He doesn't say, okay, you're restored with me. Way to go. This is all you ever wanted. No, he goes further and he says, now here's, I want to enlist you in ministry. Go and feed my lambs. I want you to go to other people now. You see, you would think, well, that, why was that necessary? Why was that failure essential? I believe Jesus looks at Peter and says, look, Peter, you now not only know of my grace, you have personally experienced my grace. You are more qualified and effective now to distribute my grace to others. And here's what I want you to know, and you know this. Someone around you needs God's grace. Someone around you needs God's grace would you just say this phrase on the screen? Someone near me needs grace. Say that again. Someone near me needs grace. The question is, who is it? You see, we, we used to think of the church as a, a, a museum for saints, and now we know it's a hospital for sinners, right? But it means that we're also both patients and doctors, meaning we're being treated and we're treating. We're receiving grace and we're distributing grace. The truth is because Peter has experienced what he's experienced, he's more qualified to be effective in sharing God's grace. This is the beauty of the failure. Now, let me give you bad news and good news about your failure. The truth is your failure, especially if it was public, it was meaningful, it was deep and hurtful, will create a memory 
that lingers with you. The bad news is, it will linger with you for the rest of your life. But here's the good news. Every time it lingers with you and that memory comes back up of your failure, Jesus invites you to remember that his forgiveness is greater than your failure. He invites you every time you think of it to remember Christ on the cross is your history, not your failure. And that every time you remember your failure, it's just an opportunity for you to remember his grace. It's as if he, your failure is pointing to the cross. And every time you remember it, you get to look at the cross. It's a beautiful reminder of who we are and who we aren't. And that's the gift the failure brings. You see, the truth is, when we failed, we're like a person who has a broken leg that never quite perfectly heals again. And every time it's cold, we feel it. But we learn to dance with a limp. And that's Peter. Jesus says, Peter, you will now dance with a limp. And that will give more grace the glory than your gifts, than your experience, than your abilities. I'll finish the story that I started with today to tell you that when I had that experience of a closed church and felt like a, my failure was final and there would be no job to follow, just a few weeks or months later, we were interviewing at a job in Southern California, a great church in Ventura. And they told me, Mark, we've had 160 applicants and here's one of the reasons we've narrowed it down to you. Because your resume isn't perfect. And we believe that'll make you a more effective pastor. In essence, because you now dance with a limp. Amen. We are a church of people who have failed in this life. Wouldn't it be great if we became known as the church full of people who dance with a limp? Who are comfortable in our failures because of what Christ has done on the cross. Imagine how your kids and grandkids to say, yeah, they're not perfect. I can tell you that. I've seen it up close. But oh, they rely on the grace of God. And it runs through them to me. They have learned to dance with a limp. And this is what Jesus invited Peter to, and I believe that's what he invites us to today. There's hope on the other side of having blown it because of the cross. So I want to give you three questions as we close that you can consider in your own life. Number one, Christ on the cross, not my failure, is my history. So here's the question. What is the voice of condemnation telling you? Oh, we all have that voice. Don't you love that lizard brain that's in all of us that just says, you're not good enough, you're not whatever enough? We all have it. What's your voice of condemnation telling you? And here's the question. Do you see yourself primarily as your failure or as a son or daughter of the king? Number two, the truth is I've been made completely worthy because of Christ on the cross. Am I listening to someone else or maybe even myself say, you're not worthy. Who do you think you are? Or am I listening to Christ who says, I made you worthy. Finally, number three. People around you need 
grace. Who in your life right now has blown it and needs God's grace? Maybe he has strategically and supernaturally placed you in their life for such a time as this. Christ on the cross, not my failure, is my history. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Would you stand with me and let's say that together. That truth, anchor it a little deeper in your heart today. As we stand together, let's say it together. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Father, we are so grateful today that despite the failures in our own life, maybe that we've initiated, we'd had, maybe they were things that were done to us, but they are things that cause shame and they create shame-filled tears. The embarrassment of our past, you knew all about it. And there's more forgiveness in your son Jesus than there is failure within us. God, may we see our identity and our history through your cross. And may we give others grace as we learn how to dance with a limp. For your glory, Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.